Well, today we are completing this series of sermons that we've been doing on being disciples makers in terms of our prayer and in terms of our practice. And so I just I want to return to a question that I've asked before. Why? Why are we here? I mean, we can think of that in terms of why are we here this morning in terms of joining together to worship, but even more at a ground level, why are we even here on this planet? Are we just the product of chance? The outcome of time, a a chemical cesspool that was zapped with radiation, the end of the evolutionary process. I don't know about you, but that possibility takes far more faith for me to believe than that there is a Creator God. So if we're working, if we are the working hand or the working product of God's hand in creation, why are we here? That question's been debated for centuries. And one historical document of the church dating back to the 1600s put it in the form of a question. What is the chief end of man? In other words, in answering the question why, they translated in terms of what? What is my purpose? What is my duty in life? And the answer given is simply this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The belief is that we were created intentionally. And since that is true, then there should be a corresponding intention regarding our lives. And though the phrase, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, is not pulled directly from a verse in the Bible, Paul does write, to the Christians at Corinth. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. By the way, the grammatical structure that Paul uses actually introduces a principle. And it's a principle that not only covers this question about why, but it covers a lot of other things as well. All is to be done to God's glory. And this aim will be a good guide in in some doubtful cases. In fact, Paul's already indicated in the letter to Corinth back in the 6th chapter, possibly stating it even more clearly, you are not your own. Wow, doesn't that smack in the face of what 21st century people are saying? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's the image I want to focus on for just a second. As you're looking at the image, hear the Word of God from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes, There is a sense in which information is important. Paul says we need to be renewing our minds. 
But the main emphasis of those two verses is upon not being informed, but being transformed. Not conformed to this world, but transformed. Paul actually uses an oxymoron to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that's dead, it's slaughtered, it's burnt on an altar. But we're to be living sacrifices. In other words, we're to go through the difficult process of transforming ourselves. If you're happy with who you are and how you're behaving, you're on the losing end. We always need to be dissatisfied, seeking to do better, seeking to grow better and more, I mean. And while we are transforming ourselves, we are also transformed by God. And how are we transformed? Into the shape of the cross. Now that's a pretty awesome picture of life. That our purpose, our duty, the thing God created us to do and what Jesus has redeemed us for is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And what better way to glorify God than with our obedience to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you. You see... The answer as to why we're here on earth in the first place is found in our great commission that we've been looking at. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When did that take place? When is this being said? Just before He ascends. He has already died on the cross, been buried, resurrected, and transcended to the right hand of God. He was enthroned as the king by means of the cross. And so all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are here for a purpose. And in keeping with our purpose, Jesus has given us a mission, a co-mission, a mission to come alongside Him, a command to make disciples. As we are going into the world, as we are going to all people groups, at the beginning of the month, I passed out cards that had printed on them the Disciple Maker's Prayer. And if you've lost yours, I believe there's still a few more back on the table. And, and I asked you this month to each day, at some point in the day, to say that prayer. Today, I want to go back to the very first line of that prayer, which is actually uh, a word of thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. A disciple-making way of life. 
a way of life. Today's message is entitled, not a task, but a way of life. We've not been given a job to do. We've been given a way of life to live as disciple makers. A way of life that if we have not been already, we should be, and that way of life should be resulting in being persecuted. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the blessings Jesus gives is, Blessed are you when, not if, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. I mean, if it's real, listen, take it to heart, and change. But if they're reviling you and persecuting you and uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on His account, Jesus says you're blessed. Luke 21, verse 17. Jesus says, you'll be hated for My name's sake. And you know, there's an interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 where Peter's writing about this likelihood of trials and sufferings. Possibly even thinking back about these words of Jesus, keeping them in mind, when He brings together obedience, suffering, and glory. Here's what He writes. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and the glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. In that name. What name? Insulted for the name of Christ. Insulted for being a Christian. Now that's, an, that's intriguing to me. And here's why. We're told in Acts 11.26 that it was in fact in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And many have suggested that it seems to have been actually the non-believing, the unbelieving public of Antioch, famed for their wit and their nicknaming skills, who were either mistaken or at least supposed that Christ was somehow Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ, rather than a title, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And so they coined this description, the Christiano, literally, little Christ. Probably even in derision. And it really doesn't seem to have caught on initially, since elsewhere it appears only twice in the New Testament. Acts 26, verse 28, and the passage I just quoted from 1 Peter 4. Only two times. 
at least it emphasizes the Christ-centered nature of discipleship. Being followers of, that's what we think of in terms of the suffix I-A-N, being followers of Christ. So, even if they're making fun of you, calling you a Christianoi, a little Christ, if they're insulting you for the name of Christ, don't be ashamed, but glory, glorify God in living in a way by walking the way of Christ and of the cross. Now the text that I've chosen today comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 verses 1 to 9. Again, Remember that in his initial recorded sermon that we have, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot, not an iota, not a dot. No, those are the littlest marks in Hebrew writing. Not even one of those will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I've heard a lot of people say, Well, that's in the Old Testament. We don't have to do that anymore. Is that what Jesus just said? I don't think so. We are still to be obeying the law. In fact, do you realize that there's only one, only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament? Can you imagine which one it might be? Keeping the Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath anymore. What do we do? We honor the first day of the week because that's the day of the week on which Jesus was resurrected. The only one. So let's, let's go digging into the Word of God a little bit. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over, to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. 
Did you hear that? What we just read was designated by Jesus when He was being tested by a scribe, a lawyer, as the greatest in the first commandment. In Matthew, in Mark, He says that it is the most important commandment. Now the rabbis divided the commandments into, in the law into the light and the weighty. And that didn't mean that some commandments were so slight that they could be neglected. All of the commandments were God's and therefore all were to be treated with seriousness. But obviously some commandments were more important than others. And that opened the way for speculation as to which of the, listen, 613 commandments that the rabbis found in the law, which of those was to be regarded as the greatest of them? Now, it's not unlikely that those people there that day, Jesus' hearers, were expecting to hear probably, if no other, at least the first of the Ten Commandments. Those commandments that had been written by the finger of God and that as a group stood out over all of the other commandments. But Jesus didn't quote one of those. Instead, He went back here to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to what is called the great Shema. The most familiar. What was repeated every single morning as a part of their prayers by devout Jews. And according to Matthew, Jesus begins with the words that are identical with Deuteronomy 6.5. But whereas the passage goes on with all your might, Jesus proceeds by saying, with all of your mind. Now, we shouldn't take much uh, of this difference because Mark says Jesus has four elements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength or might. Why, why should we not be too alarmed? First of all, remember, they weren't using tape recorders. And they weren't sitting there with pads of paper and pen taking dictation. Second, both options were not only common in Jesus' day, but thirdly, both are ways of expressing the same point. That love for God should be wholehearted, involving all that we have and all that we are. And the rep repetition of the little word all is far more significant than the fact that Jesus may or may not have added or even changed the word at some points when He was giving it. The answer Jesus gives is exceedingly powerful and disturbing. For it takes the lawyer from the realm of achievement, what works should we be doing, which might be conceivable, conceivable you might be able to conceive uh, that they are able to be fulfilled. He takes it from works to relationship. To that of our attitude. Where nobody can boast. For people who, like this expert in the law, are strong on works, but weak on relationships, this strongly relational teaching is actually a revealing mirror a look into our hearts. So let's go back to the text in Deuteronomy. 
Because what we actually find in verses 6 to 9 is instruction as to a way to teach a way of life. The important, the information uh, was to be internalized, memorized, made a part of the will. So later in chapter 11, verse 18, the people are told, lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Now they understood that there was a difference between us thinking rationally and when we were making decisions because they knew that when we were, they were thinking rationally, they, they might get a headache, but they didn't feel all the butterflies in their guts. Obedience was to come from the heart, the desires. It was necessary that the law, because of that, was also placed there. It wasn't just information. Just an external code to be legalistically followed. It was to be transformation. A way of life to be internalized. So Paul can say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be metamorphosized. Don't be the person you were 10 years ago. 20 years ago, last week. Be willing to continue to change, to get rid of some of those annoying, distasteful, nasty habits so that we can relate to other people in love, a way of life. And that comes out in what's known as the wisdom literature. The Old Testament... Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those were what were considered the wisdom books. And by the way, even James in the New Testament is often referred to as wisdom literature. For instance, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. There, the writer of Proverbs actually makes a distinction between what we mentally know and what we are doing in terms of our choices and our will and what we are feeling. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on just what your mind is telling you. So, back in Deuteronomy 6. In verse 7, the emphasis is upon constant repetition for the benefit of the children. When my oldest ones were young, uh, I often had to get them to bed by myself at night. I would rock my oldest son, and I would sing Christian hymns. And by, that, by the time he was starting to speak, he knew those words of those hymns. They'd been internalized. Let me bring it down to the nitty-gritty. 
When you are faced with a difficult task, which driving a car is, if you don't believe me, watch a video sometime of young people when they are first being taught to drive a car. Trying to remember everything that has to be done. Oh, intersection, turn signal. When you leave here today and you get in the car and you come to an intersection, do you actually think, here's an intersection, I have to turn the signal on? Or do you just automatically hit the lever? You see, we start to automate those things which we have had to think through at some point or another. And they're no longer a process of our intentional thinking. They are a part of our practices, our rituals, our habits. And the demonstration of the way of life was to be repeated to the kids so often that whenever they went somewhere, wherever they went, he says when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you get up, they were to be once again demonstrating what that meant in terms of our glorifying God. God has given them and us an obligation to pass that way of life to the next generation. And failure to do so jeopardizes their status as the people of God and thereby God's witness in the world. So in verses 8 and 9, the emphasis is on a visible reminders, practices, family rituals that were to be implemented uh, to implement the command of verse 6. A similar method to that, by the way, is introduced in Exodus 13, where the observance of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a sign and reminder of the Exodus event. And when Jesus took the bread and took the, the cup, where were they at? The Passover meal. Which was a reminder of the Exodus experience. And so in a very tangible, very material way, He was saying, hey, this is my body. What you have been partaking of for a thousand years, remembering what God did for us and giving us our liberty, our freedom, what you have been drinking as the cup of the blessing, these were looking in advance to when my body would be broken, my blood would be shed to provide the way of true release, to fr true freedom. And the symbol or sign was what's known as a monomic strategy, a, a strategy to help us remember something to remind those people of the past or even um, some event, feast days, solemn assemblies, even piles of stone, things that were done, behavior to be performed to rehearse the history and the teaching of God. Now, many have debated whether the binding of God's hand or God's word was to be literal. Should we go around with little boxes on our wrists and hanging down in front of our forehead? They've actually uh, debated that. And there have been little boxes found in archaeological digs uh, that contained little scrolls in them where there were those who were taking it literally. 
But I think the, the debate is less important than the significance of the command. The words of the law were to be continually before the people and also embedded in their hearts so that the whole community would constantly be reminded of its love commitment to God. And this is very important. Genesis 1.27 God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God He created them. Male and female He created them. We are created with God's image as a part of us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and again in verse 16. Twice we are told, God is love. The defining characteristic of God is not a list of theological beliefs but a term that's always associated with action. Again, we're not primarily thinking beings, nor are we primarily believing beings. We are effective beings who are defined by our desires and by our loves. So, if God is known by His love, shouldn't we also be known by our love? Our desires? Our practices that make up our way of life? When confronted with a decision to make, you're going to make the decision to do the one that you desire the most. Will that be in keeping with what we know from the Word of God? The way of life God has given to us. And so could it possibly be, could that possibly be why the disciples were first called the way? Acts chapter 9 verse 2. A term that's obviously pointing to the way they were living. 24-7-365. Not by their words. Not even by their teaching or doctrine. But the, by the way they were living. Have you ever had somebody who you know their way of life is in no way consistent with God's Word? Say... Well, I'm a Christian. Really? You see, it's about how we treat others. Especially the marginalized. Those that society has rejected due to their prejudice. The description of Christians as those of the way is peculiar to Acts. But listen to me. It's used more times than the word Christian, which I shared with you is only used twice. In addition to this reference in Acts 9.2, it appears five more times. Acts 19.9 and 23, Acts 22 verse 4, and in chapter 24 verses 14 and verse 22. Six times the Christians are referred to as the way. And it might be that behind this term lies the concept of the way of the Lord God, as in Acts 18. Or even the way of salvation, as in Acts 16. But being a Christian is not just about what's going on in our heads. The scriptural teaching is that God has appointed the way or manner of life which we're to follow if we desire to be saved. And Mark 12 verse 24 is a classic example of that. 
the people recognized that Jesus was teaching, quote, the way of God. And the claim of the early church, the claim of the disciples, that their relational way of life and their obedience to God, that led to the absolute use of the term to define them. They were known for their movement, what they're doing. They were people of the way. Is that how we're primarily known? By the way we are living? I can tell you this, it's not the way we're known in the world of academia. In the written materials, those things that are being published, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're people who say one thing but don't live that way. And so here's my challenge for you this morning in closing. We need to be demonstrating our love for God by keeping His commandments. And what better place to start than the Great Commission? By being disciple makers. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, to And by this we know that we have come to know Him. That is, that we have come to know God. If we keep His commandments. So if there's somebody out here living in such a way that they're obviously not keeping the commandments of the Scriptures and they say, well, I'm a Christian, you can say, well, that's not right according to 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Because John says, if you're not keeping the commandments, if you're not being obedient, you don't know God. Whoever says, John continues, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way, the way in which He walked. It's not about what we say, how we talk. It's about how we walk. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today hopefully convicted. Hopefully convicted that some of those little things that we say, well, we can't get, we can't get over that. That's just the way we are. That's how we've been for many years. We, that we'll work on those behavior traits that cause us to have problems with our neighbors and with our friends so that they don't see You in us, but they see the evil that we are doing by our behavior. Help us to be obedient to Your commands, especially this command of purpose to be disciple-makers. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.